Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, and the library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the new name Senior Straight Talk and can be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. You can hear the short news tidbits of interest to seniors, their families, and the general public on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. When visiting the channel, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to Senior News for Today. I have two courses, which you can find on my website at www.phyllisamonassociates.com. For those listeners who feel stressed, stretched, and overwhelmed, Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you recharge, reset, and recommit as you face life's challenges. Family members consider considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information on my latest course, our caregiving guide for caregivers, the basics. And look out for my new course coming soon, Coming Alive with Music and Communicating Effectively with Persons Having Dementia, who I am proud to say I created with Dan Cohn, founder of Music and Memory and Write to Music. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon on both paperback and e-formats. And I'm thrilled that Dr. Bill Thomas wrote the foreword for the book, which addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes, and assisted living residences. Senior Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Senior Straight Talk and Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And I'm also glad to welcome our sponsor, Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California, dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. And before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. And now it is my utmost Utmost pleasure to introduce today's extraordinary guest, Nora Duncan, State Director of Connecticut AARP, who has extensive public affairs experience in Connecticut's nonprofit sector and executive branch with expertise in grassroots advocacy, government relations, nonprofit management, volunteer engagement, and strategic communications. Nora has been recognized by the National Council of Nonprofits for Nonprofit Advocacy Leadership, locally for volunteer excellence by Nutmeg Big Brothers and Big Sisters, and the city of Hartford, and was named a Hartford Business Journal 40 Under 40. She's a graduate of the University of Connecticut and attended the Harvard Law School Executive Education Program of Negotiation and Leadership. 
So, Nora, I'm so thrilled that you were able to share your time with me today. I know you have a, um, a busy morning with an upcoming uh, legislative uh, panel, so I, I'm so thrilled that you could take some time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Nora, I know that AARP's, um, you know, has important agendas at the moment, especially about surrounding nursing homes. Uh, as we all know, COVID really shone a bright light on what was happening in nursing homes. And um, so you want to, you know, talk a little bit about AARP's agenda in that realm? Yeah, yes, I would love to. Thank you. Um, we've always done a little bit of work around nursing homes, but, you know, honestly, because we have such a broad agenda as a, as a regular part of our business, a lot of things we sort of left to the nursing home experts. You know, we rely heavily on the Connecticut long-term care ombudsman, Murray Painter, and others. Uh, and then COVID hit. And as you said, a light was shown. Uh, so first, I want to start out with, I'm not here to bash nursing homes. Um, there are some that probably would d deserve bashing. But they these are, you know, the, the vast majority are hard uh, working, committed uh, staff and managers and even owners who did their best under terrible circumstances with COVID. I agree. Um, there are some bad actors like there are everywhere. Uh, but what this really did, I think, was shine that light on existing problems, deficiencies, and um, probably things that should have been corrected a long time ago, like any infrastructure issue, you know, bridges don't collapse because we pay close attention to them and do everything we're supposed to do, right? So, you know, you, you put things aside, no, there's no money, push it aside, push it aside. And I think a lot of that happened. Um, and we now see the results of that. Right. You know, I, I just want to jump in and say when you said that, that a lot of people are probably doing their best. You know, the whole issue of shortage of PPE came up and people were pointing fingers at nursing homes for not having sufficient PPE. But I have always, and I was working in nursing homes during COVID. People had asked me to cover in some places and one place has had everything they needed and the other place, we, you know, had ponchos, which is a different <laughs> issue. But uh, the reality is that nursing homes never would have had that amount of PPE on hand. They wouldn't have needed it. They wouldn't have expected it. That is not something that would have been part of their um, supply. Right, so right. Hit, you can't really point the finger at them for not having it because they wouldn't have had to have it. Uh, well, yep. And, and looking forward, we're going to make sure that changes, right? Correct. You know, and like you say, you know, there was absolutely incidences that were well documented of misuse of PPE, of of um, <laughs> having it and not providing it appropriately to staff. But ultimately, we didn't see this coming. Maybe we should have. Again, these are the things that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So let's look ahead, right? Now that we know what we know, we look ahead. Um, our agenda, I mean, so first of all, we've been in March of 2020, when this all began and Governor Lamont started his executive orders, the first, you know, among them, civil immunity for nursing homes and other healthcare facilities. Okay, that was appropriate then. Uh, shutting down visitation. We've been working at picking away at that, right? 
so that we could get a little bit back to normal, um, with especially with visitation. And now, uh, luckily, uh, civil immunity for nursing homes was finally lifted. We're going to be almost, well, just literally 10 days shy of a year since that um, was enacted um, when it comes. Can you, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can you, can you just explain for listeners what civil immunity means? Yeah. We have an understanding so, of it. There was an executive order that basically said in the most layman's terms possible, um, nursing homes and other healthcare facilities, and this was pretty wide ranging, um, but our agenda sticks to nursing homes mostly, are immune from lawsuits that are basically as a result of COVID-19 that were not due to like gross negligence or criminal activity. Okay, so it's really hard to sue because of a lot of things. And I think we can get into some of that. If you're a, a family member with someone in a, a nursing home, because the burden of proof, right? You're still, even in a civil case, there's a burden of proof. It's not as much as in a criminal case, of course. Correct. Um, but, you know, because we do not allow as a state uh, cameras in nursing home rooms, I mean, some, some facilities, will allow it, but there is absolutely, the majority will not, uh, and are, to get to my legislative agenda, fighting us on allowing them. But so a lot of times when there's an incident, let's say dehydration or something, or someone falls and they are left not, um, they're left for some time. Um, The nursing home will often say, oh, it's a misunderstanding, you know, mom doesn't remember properly. And that, that that's true sometimes, I'm no, sure. That's true, true. That's, that's <laughs> but, true. But it's really easy to dismiss the nursing home residents' say on what happens. Correct. Um, you know, or say the staff person just, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, you know, what he said, she said. Uh, so that stuff was going on before. We didn't like it before. During COVID, we spent almost a solid year with civil immunity. It makes some sense. I got it. Again, unprecedented times. But in May of 2020, we started saying enough's enough. You know, people right. have a right to due process. And you have, with, with a swoop of the pen, eliminated it. And we object. And we objected and objected and objected and objected, and uh, countless numbers of letters to the Department of Public Health and the governor, countless texts and emails, um, the long-term care ombudsman right beside us. And finally, uh, in February 2021, we got the announcement that it will end on March 1st, 2021. So I've taken that as a win. I'll take any win I can get. That's great for families. And I do believe that there was an initiative on, on the national level about um, binding arbitration in, in nursing home admissions agreements, but we won't get into that because yeah. there's so much else to cover, but uh, I'm sorry. It's terrific about the civil immunity, yeah. but it's just, it just gives people a, 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 even though I don't expect this massive number of lawsuits, but what I expect is that people feel like they have a tool in their toolbox. Correct. Again, and that when there is accountability, people behave better than when there's not, it's just human nature. I I agree. We were talking before we started recording about, you know, going to the gym. I work out a lot harder when I'm in a group class than I do when I'm by myself because I know people are watching me. (laughs) It's just human nature, right? Uh, uh, 
I agree. Uh, absolutely. Like if you, um, if you go, I, I liken it to if you go out to uh, dinner or you're with family and friends and they know that you're uh, supposed to be watching your intake because of whatever reason. And um, you're more likely not going to cheat with that piece of cake or whatever yes. it is than if yes. you're by yourself. But getting back to nursing. Okay. Home, one of the other nursing things. Right. I have I have a legislative agenda for 2021. Right. So let's talk about that in terms of staffing, because staffing Staffing. is another important part that played a role in COVID. But it's been, as you said, a longstanding issue. We've had staffing problems for a long time. So we are advocating to establish minimum staffing ratios to assure 4.1 hours of nursing staff care per resident per day at skilled nursing facilities. So that's not like it, you know, it's not everywhere, but it's skilled nursing facilities. Um, And improving pay for nursing home staff uh, and building a more robust, qualified, stable, long-term care workforce. I mean, the issue is, as we we knew before, you know, some of these nursing home staff can't afford to just have the one job. And they're going, they went, this this was beforehand, but you couldn't, you didn't see it again, the bright light. So if I have to work at three nursing homes, I just, and I had, I got COVID or someone in the one nursing home had COVID. I just spread it all around. Um, and I've known people who've worked seven to three, three to 11 and 11 to seven for days in a row. Uh, and, and that's not going to, okay, then I get 4.1 hours of nursing staff care. But if the nursing staff care is so exhausted that they can't take care of me, well, then what's the point? I might as well have had one good hour. Right. So, I mean, staffing issues are, we, we need to make working in a nursing home have dignity, the work, you, need, you right. know, dignity of work, um, provide people with a ladder even to, to advance in their career. This doesn't need to be a job that is, the, you know, you, this is the job you have and the one job you have forever. Correct. Correct. I, I actually firmly believe that, uh, that there, there is something should be built, not should be, but uh, an idea would be to build in something about leadership. So it, it's kind of what you're saying about investment. I've seen so many uh, certified nurse aides uh, through the years or LPNs, licensed practical nurses, who really, if they were encouraged and supported, could really uh, grow and, and bloom if that was available to them. But just getting back to staffing for one moment, I believe uh, there was an article a couple of weeks ago or maybe a week or so ago that New York is uh, trying to enact minimum staffing, New Jersey, Rhode Island, uh, in local states. I know California, there are people in California who have been advocates and advocating for this like Charlene Harrington for many, many, many years. But I I think that this whole COVID situation has really uh, brought that to light how, you know, how that that's going to be accomplished is another issue, but. Yeah, and I think um, we definitely have this on the legislative agenda, um, bipartisan support for these things. You know, I've had bipartisan support for a lot of things in my long career in (laughs) politics, Um, but I remain, I am hopeful that we can accomplish things and, um, and and really start picking away at this. I don't think there's going to be a swipe of the pen uh, come end of legislative session, everything solved, but we need to build a long-term plan. And I think one thing that's really important with all of the things I'm talking about and that we'll talk about today, I don't want to look at this solution, right? Whatever that legislative solution is as a, 
fix for COVID. I want to be looking 5, 10, 15, 20 years out at what the long-term care uh, home and community-based services world looks like in Connecticut, because it can't look like what it looks like today. Today is a failure. So we need to, and, and, and we're getting older, and we know that there's going to be more and more and more people uh, right. in the system. We know there'll be less and less staff to take care of them. And we know that people don't want to live in nursing homes at a rate of about 95% of the surveys we've conducted. <laughs> right. So I want to be talking about what we can do for um, different kinds of living arrangements, about um, home and community-based services, and making that work also the kind of work that people want to do mm -hmm. and that has a, a staff uh, solution to it that keeps people employed there that doesn't, again, make people have to work five, 10 different jobs, you know, 20 hours a day. Um, so this has got to be a long-term view. And that's the hard part. The easy part is quick fixes. The hard part is what does it look like? I mean, I'm, I'm 47 years old. What does it look like when it's my turn? Ah, so I'm about 20 years your senior. And um, I'm going to just address something you just said. Uh, this is part of something I talk about. And it's part of ageism. I don't know that we're going to be able to get into that. But I talk a lot about the language we use. This is not new news. But I have an issue with the word old because we use that word from the time we're born, the time we're young. How old are you? Old, one-year-old, two-year-old. Nobody yeah. thinks anything yeah. of it at that time. But as you advance in years, the word old has a connotation with it. So I prefer to say I'm 68 years of age, or I have 68 years, or I've been living 68 years. Uh, so you're not 47 years old, you're 47 years of age with a wealth of wisdom and experience, which some of which I read about in your bio. <laughs> it's funny because when I write things, you know, when I write things for AARP, like I wrote a press statement yesterday and um, we, I always say the age, age 50 plus, because that's our, that's our, our population. Right. right. And we have a huge program that we call Disrupt Aging that was founded by um, it started with a book written by our CEO at AARP, Joanne Jenkins, but we do this all the time. You know, disrupt aging. It, it, it's, it isn't, yeah, you know, what, how do we view age as a whole, like you're talking about, right? Um, what does it mean? And, and <laughs> I, always, I always remind people, age, age discrimination comes in many forms. Right. Uh, and one of the programs we have is Disrupt Aging Classroom, where you sit around in a college classroom and and students start to realize, wait, 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 wait a minute. I always get like, I'm too young. I don't have enough experience. This right. job's not for you. And then you get, wait, you're too old? Right. Right. What is perfect? <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like you can't get credit unless you have credit. It's kind of yes. a double-edged exactly. sword. Uh, people don't even realize I was talking with a gentleman, I was doing a podcast the other day, and he was telling me that uh, he has a friend who's 82 years old, and everybody is amazed that he still can run around a tennis court, and how active he is. And I said, you see, people don't even realize that really is an ageist yeah. attitude. Why do we think that? Because we have this idea that when someone's 82, well, they wouldn't be doing that, or they would be frail or infirm or living in a nursing home. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go back to the gym class analogy. I, I absolutely love when I see <laughs> some kids home on college break and they come in and they haven't done the class before, but there's, there's a, you know, 
retired uh, woman who's been doing the class for a year and she is just kicking butt and the college students like laying down. <laughs> it's about, it's about practice and it's right. about, you know, I mean, it's not about age. It's about doing it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it's interesting that, uh, and we, we only have a few seconds before we go to break, but when we okay. come back, I, I hope we can talk about how people can stay in their homes longer and the idea of the money follows the person program. I don't think people have a great understanding of that. So let's take yeah. a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue this uh, great discussion with um, Nora Duncan. I'm, I'm thrilled. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. Having a great conversation here with Nora Duncan, State Director of Connecticut AARP. And we were talking about nursing homes, money follows the person program, ageism, uh, all of that great stuff. So where should we begin in this uh, second half, Nora? All right, let me wrap up my legislative agenda on nursing homes. So a couple big categories that uh, besides staffing that we're working on, or a few, I should say, not a couple, but uh, social connection, we really need to address this issue of social isolation. We cannot have another time where people are just locked out with no ability to communicate with their loved ones. It's bad for um, people's mental health. It also allows for, again, when there are bad actors, for those bad actors to behave even worse. And so we, we got to address that. And one of the key factors in that, and this will be our I don't know, fifth, sixth year run at it. I thought we were going to get it last year and then COVID hit, but ensure that residents have the right to utilize a variety of communication devices in their rooms to permit them to remain connected to their loved ones and permit family caregivers to participate as a member of the resident's care team. 
So yeah. I'm talking, what off the shelf can you buy that you haven't, like, let's, let's pretend it's a nanny cam. Okay. Right. The only place where you really don't have a right to have a camera in your home is when your home of choice is a nursing home and that's got to end. Right. Um, so. But, but part of, excuse me, I'm sorry. There are nine states, I believe, that do allow cameras in rooms. But I believe the issue with that was a privacy issue, especially if it's a, a person's room with more than one bed. We have language that completely addresses that. Great. Glad to um, hear. So I, I don't want to hear another legislator um, <laughs> or a policymaker say it's complicated. Yeah. I, I, I refuse to accept that language from them anymore. So the public hearing should be fun. Um, infection control and emergency planning. You and I talked about that. We didn't, you know, nobody was expected to have all this PPE, right? Well, let's build a plan. So we have it. Right. Um, and then the, the state's public health emergency respo response plan needs to include long-term care and home and community-based services. Um, if uh, any percentage of our residents live in a facility or require home care, they need to be included in a plan statewide. Um, and then accountability. Um, we want to create direct care payment ratio so that any public funding is used for resident care. Mm -hmm. um, civil immunity we talked about, that was on my agenda, eliminating that by law. I'm not sure if we're going to approach a way to craft a law that um, says how we might work this in the future, but I'm glad to have that temporarily off my plate. Um, and then um, again, home and community-based services, which I know you want to talk about, we got to build this up for older adults and people with disabilities. Uh, absolutely. There, I've been talking about this actually for a long time. When it first came about when people want, obviously people don't want to go to a nursing home, but when there was a greater number of people who wanted to remain in their homes and have in-home care. And part of what a uh, concern that I have, and I'm interested to find out if AARP has an initiative in this area, is who's going to oversee home care agencies? Or is there is there, uh, is there a way that home care agencies are being... Um, have some kind of oversight like nursing homes do uh, in, um, you know, with the Department of Health and their annual survey. So I'm interested to find out about that. So I find this confusing, and this is where I wish I had my staff member, Anna Dora Ghazi, handy. Um, there's oversight by the Department of Public Health now to a degree and the Department of Consumer Protection, but there are different levels Correct. You know, what if you if you private hire versus if it's an agency, agencies have a lot more regulation built in. Um, we have always had issues and there's been legislation in the past. And it's only we're not, we, I've only been to you know two public hearings now. So we're early on and I don't have language for all the legislation that is floating around yet um, because we just put out titles in Connecticut. Right. And, then, you know, fill in the blank later. Right. <laughs> But, but build, uh, build it and they will come. I mean, yeah, build it and they will come. Exactly. But oversight of issue and the background check issue has has come up time and time and time again. So I assume it will still, and that we, as we build out uniformity and very clear understanding for families about what what is the definition of a background check, mm -hmm. um, what is the real oversight? Um, what are my rights and where do I get the best information? That's got to be clear and concise so that anybody, I don't care if you, uh, you know, have a PhD 
or a GED, I don't care if English was your second language or you barely speak English at all, you got to be able to go find it. It's got to be clear to people. I um, agree. So, I mean, that's the goal, I think, long term. As we build, um, I don't want to make, I don't want to build a system that is so regulated and that people can't afford it. So we have to be also working to make sure that quality is there and people can still afford it. That again, remember I said before, the, the long-term solutions are the complicated ones. Absolutely. So, so explain to people what Money Follows the Person program is, which I believe is part of a, uh, a national legislative agenda now is, uh, from the Biden administration. At least that's what they had said when they put forth their platform. Yeah, uh, Money Follows the Person is a great program that could do a lot more. Um, and Connecticut does pretty pretty well at this. But again, we could all do better. Uh, and I look forward to doing better. But it's, it, I'll, I'll use layman's terms again, because frankly, because I'm not an expert in this, I don't have any other terms. Um, so, so we're paying for you to live in a nursing home with public dollars. Let's take those public dollars and redirect them so that you can go live in the community with if support. You if you'd like, and, and the services are available to you. Yeah, and so safe. Yep. Right. Yep. And so um, this is for, again, um, whoever, anyone living in a nursing home that qualifies for this can, can be, it's just a redirection. And it's, we call it like rebalancing, rebalancing the system. So that I would like to see a system where much more of our money is spent on home and community-based services as compared to facility living as, you know, is nursing homes, skilled nursing. I think that is a very um, doable goal. Uh, the agenda from, I think, from advocates, from the um, administration is to, to go that route. Um, the governor in Connecticut mentioned yesterday in his budget address uh, two things, which I haven't, I, I, again, I don't have all the details and everything yet, but um, in a property tax scenario um, where, you know, state buildings and nonprofits don't pay property taxes, he mentioned that um, towns would be receiving more property tax influx by the closing of prisons and nursing homes. And I thought that was a really interesting thing, but because he's talking, because what we have right now is a lot of the nonprofit nursing homes not paying those property taxes. And right. it's not like he's going to go and shut them down. He doesn't have that authority, nor is he talking about that. But there, there's a census issue. Right. Um, census is way down, partially because so many people died of COVID-19. Um, but also people don't want, people are taking their family members out of nursing homes Correct. and people are not putting them in nursing homes. So that, the industry is going to shrink as a result of COVID-19. Money follows the person, can help do that in a way for those who are living in a nursing home that has a census that is so low that is not conducive to remaining open. You know, we don't need to be in a position where we're just like, oh, well, we're shipping mom to wherever, Let's say, let's use money, follow the person opportunities to have mom go if she chooses to a home and community-based service setting. So uh, here's a uh, question I just thought of as you were speaking. Suppose somebody is now living in a nursing home. They don't want to live in a nursing home any longer. 
could they, um, in, in that scenario, if, if that really comes to pass, could they apply to um, move out of the nursing home into a community-based setting and, and use that money? Because if I believe that it costs less if a person is in the community than in a nursing home, and not everybody needs 24-hour skilled care. Um, I would say if they can't, they should be able to. Um, and yeah, it's three, it's about three to one in terms of the, the, the cost of supporting Correct. someone at home. Um, <clears throat> so I, I would like to say everybody who lives in a nursing home should have the right to say, I want out and tell me what the process is to get out. Mm. Um, that will be interesting. I would, I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, we have to have a system that can support that, right? But ultimately that should be the goal, that everybody who wants out can say, I would like to apply to get out. And then we have to do an evaluation of what is that, is that possible? Right. What would that look like and set it up? You know, I used to work in the um, uh, developmental disabilities field and I have been in the last several months reminded consistently of the work that families had to do they still do, but especially 50, 60 years ago, um, parents with children who were um, born with a, a developmental disability, you know, you, they used to just get, they'd say, oh, your, your baby has Down syndrome. Um, I'll be shipping them off to the local uh, hospital to live for the rest of their life. Right. right? Parents said, no, they will not. And a parent movement created right. the world we have today, okay, <laughs> where people can live independently. We have schools that support them. You can live in a, in, a, in a small group home where you go to work and you live with friends and you have a normal life, right? Correct. With, support, with supports. That, that's the world we're talking about, but now we're talking about it among people who live in nursing homes. And I just want to say, because a, a thought that may come to people's minds or uh, as we're talking about this, is that, um, is that, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, something happened on my computer as we're talking and I can't get it to stop and I don't want anything to happen to, to our uh, conversation. So <laughs> excuse me for that. Uh, we're all at home now, so it's a little yeah. different, right? Um, the tech support team is just you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, and my daughter would say it's very, it's a very handicapped tech support team. <laughs> but, uh, People think that people living in skilled nursing facilities uh, that have a lot of needs, 24-hour care, can't really live at home. However, uh, my specialty originally was people who are ventilator dependent. That's my passion. I've, I've, I've worked on many vent units. And I've known many people who are ventilator dependent who are living at home. And yeah. that's basically 24-hour care. I just visited a gentleman a few months ago um, somebody asked me to go visit him to help with um, some speaking situation. And uh, he's living at home and he has a tracheostomy uh, too. And um, he's doing great. It, if you think about it in terms of the infrastructure that is dollars that are needed to support a facility versus a home, right? So <clears throat> it's it, the cost and the ability it, the cost is less, the ability is there. Obviously, it's going to cost a little more to keep someone who's severely disabled at home than it will be to keep someone who isn't at home. 
But 24-hour care is absolutely possible at home. Absolutely. And people don't think of it that way. But we can talk about the family caregiver too, Phyllis. I mean, really, if you were living at home when COVID-19 struck instead of in a skilled nursing facility, right, you would still have that extra support of the family caregiver coming in to the home, which was completely, entirely cut off during COVID. Now, people might be worried they don't want to go, but I, I hear I hear all the time from family caregivers, especially during COVID, um, <clears throat> about this. And, you know, the ability to go in and provide that supplemental care to keep that eye on people to help, it just stopped. And and I don't think I don't think I understood, to be honest with you, how much supplemental care was going on in nursing homes. Oh, absolutely. I didn't know. Honestly, I did not know people hired caregivers to go into nursing homes. That that blew my mind when I learned that. And I only learned that because of COVID. And I don't know why I didn't know it, but I didn't. I thought, okay, if it's if it's for thirty thousand dollars a year to live in a nursing home or more, why are we having to hire private pay people to go in? And then I started to look at the staffing ratios and I said, Oh, and no camera. Oh, right. All these things. So it's not just, I mean, this, this, it, 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 I I really, I wish I hadn't, I wish I had known a lot of this stuff beforehand, but, um, now that I did, I could have told you, (laughs) I said, if you would have asked me, I could have told you. Yeah. I just, it just never occurred to me. And people were at home that extra level of care would not have been cut off. I mean, obviously there's lots of complications right. because of COVID everywhere, but I think it's a lot less complicated. Uh, the, the other, the other thing about, uh, about visitation and lack of visitation in nursing homes and cameras and all of that, that family members understand that their role in ensuring their loved one receives adequate care is really crucial and their presence to ensure that that happens is crucial. So another aspect for me of that, uh, the family's ability to view their loved one is to really see if anything had, if they look different, if they look uh, thinner, if they, if there is a a mark on them, uh, which, which they wouldn't see if they just had, let's say a phone call. Those things are really very important. And then they could take the appropriate action steps if they feel they need to. So that visual is really, really, really important to ensure that that quality care is maintained. That camera thing is, I'm really passionate about that. I was passionate about it before, but I just don't, I can, (laughs) why are we acting like people who live in nursing homes don't have rights? Well, they do have rights. That's what that boils down to to me. And, And it is not... I understand the privacy concerns. We've got language. It's not about staff privacy. Staff don't have privacy at a daycare center. Staff don't have privacy at a doggy uh, daycare. Staff don't have privacy at the bank. Staff don't have privacy at the hospital. So guess what? To me, it's not really about uh, staff privacy. It's not to uh, me. That, and, and one of the reasons is, and I don't know if you know this, but 
most people who, who work in nursing homes uh, know this, and especially if they go from not-for-profit to for-profit, one of the first things that they do is install cameras everywhere, in the hallways. In the hallways, yes. It, yes. It, has many, it has many purposes, by the way. Okay. Some, of, some of it is, is helpful because if something happens, they could look at a camera and see if the person really was in the room, how long they were in the room. There are reasons for it. But it also has to do with productivity and, and other things. So people are actually being watched all the time. If anybody's ever been in a nursing home and uh, you're not allowed to have cell phones and they know cameras are in the hallways, they take out their phone, they duck into a, a person's room if nobody's in there or in a bathroom. So the, the cameras really serve a purpose for watching people for a variety of uh, reasons, good and bad. So I don't see why it can't be in a uh, patient's room. Yeah, and again, we have the language for privacy concerns. Right. I mean, we have the long-term care ombudsman has examples um, of people having things taken away, like echo dots during COVID. I mean, again, flabbergasted, flabbergasted. I I never, I hadn't heard that. I'm speechless. I'm like, if if you're taking that away, you're doing something that you don't want people to know about. Correct. But honestly, 90% of this camera thing is about what you said. I get to check in. It's social connectivity. Right. It's, it's being part of the care plan. It's not a gotcha. It's only a gotcha when it needs to be. But it really, this is about, if you look at what happens, there is absolutely no denying that people suffered mentally and physically due to the social isolation. And well, we could have taken the edge off of that if family members were allowed, even if they didn't have them before, say, you know what, let me get a two-way camera in here so I can just talk to mom. Right. right? And, and there are ways, I just read an article, uh, I think it was yesterday or this morning, about how there are devices that could be on all the time. And all they have to do is the person comes along. It, it's as if, if we have Zoom open yeah, and it's open, but until I sit down and you sit down, we don't really see each other. So when the person comes to the the call, they could say, hi, mom, hi, dad, whoever it is, and uh, have that kind of engagement. And then the person doesn't have to push any buttons. They don't have to do anything if they have any cognitive issues where they can't follow that direction or weaknesses where they can't push a button. And then you also don't need staff time to facilitate that engagement. So in a way, it's really saving the nursing home tremendously. I really advocate for it to be part of every person's care plan that at least once a week, they should have a a virtual visit with a family member, a loved one, a friend, whoever they choose. Yeah. And if they, if that was at their fingertips, that would be something you're right. Staff didn't have to facilitate and it didn't take up any time. And it was part of the care plan that was, you know, just, just on we go. Right. Absolutely. And unfortunately in many of these cases, it, you know, it's kind of a checkbox, but it, it really, uh, like the person-centered care concept. I mean, a lot of places are really doing it, but then there are places that do it and it's really just, you know, checking a box. So I think these things, thankfully for, for organizations like AARP who are really involved in the legislative agenda, you know, per state. And then of course there are other initiatives on a national level, you know, hopefully some of these changes will be able to be made for the benefit of residents, families who are really, as much as the resident is isolated and it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, families are stressed about. Oh, the the, the agony. I mean, it it is in, 
And you know what, these, these things we're advocating for ultimately, I think are really good for the staff at nursing homes too. Um, you know, having a happier, healthier residents, having um, the protect the PPE you need. I mean, the staff, the staffing ratios, the stress that they were under that, that, and, and when we're talking about staff at nursing homes, I mean, we're a lot of times we're talking about, you know, uh, low income minority women who are, you know, <laughs> breaking their backs to raise families to, to do. And, and it's, it's really, there's, there's a lot here. This, this whole thing to, to raise people up will be a benefit to all of us. I, I agree. I think we have to end there and I hope we can continue this conversation another time. I think there's so much to cover how about when we accomplish all these excellent goals in the legislative session? I'll come back and show off about it, Phyllis. I, I'm with you, Nora. And I <laughs> have confidence. So we met uh, almost two years ago, and I have every confidence that you will be able to accomplish that. So I'm, I hope so. I think I'll put the date on the calendar. You know, you have to talk things into existence. I'm going to put it on the calendar. For, I won't tell you the date, but then okay. I'll contact you close to that date and say, aha, here it is. I'll set it up. <laughs> all right. Okay, well, listen, Nora, thanks for generously sharing your time with us today on Senior Straight Talk and for your insights, your advocacy, your passion, and, and all the, the incredible work you do for AARP on behalf of, um, you know, on behalf of all of us. It's not just for people that are 50 and above. It's really for the community at large. So on that note, I'm going to uh, sign off and uh, Tell our listeners to please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms. 